日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey, welcome to the Samurai Archives Podcast. This is Chris. I'm here with Nate and Joseph. Hello. Hey. And we're here at the Samurai Archives studio at the University of Hawaii. This is our introduction to Japanese history, our third part.、Uh, this one will be tackling the Asuka Nara period. You may know the Asuka Nara period as the time when Buddhism was introduced to Japan,、uh, a period of high art and funny hats, but that's not all. There's actually a lot more to it. We're going to go over that today. I'll start off with chronology. The Asuka period, to a great extent, overlaps with the, the previous Kofun period, which we talked about in the previous podcast. The Asuka period began、uh, mid 6th century and takes us up until 710, although the, the latter half of that is often called the Hakuho period. But we'll get more into that when we talk about、uh, the flourishing of Asuka period art. Right, it's my understanding that that's the. Distinction between those two is art historians、mm-hmm. use and architects use one、yes. term and, and historians. Regular historians, I guess. you know. Real historians. Real historians. Sorry,、uh, I would need to apologize to my high school art history teacher for that. For timeline purposes, in、yes. just as far as、uh, chronological events, it's normally the Asuka period. As we mentioned in the previous podcast, the Yamato state was, was forming, it was coagulating in the Kofun period. <clears throat> and it's in, in, during the Asuka period that it, it takes form and begins to model itself on, on China. Now, the, the, it's during this time that the, the Yamato polity is centered in、uh, Nara, as it has been for some time. I, in the previous podcast, we talked about the five kings of Oa who were, who were centered in, in Osaka, but at this point, they are in Nara where they will remain for, for quite some time. It's,、uh, in, it's during this time that Buddhism arrives in Japan、uh, from China through the conduit of the Korean Peninsula.、Uh, it's recorded as arriving in 538, and there seem to be Buddhist elements in Japan before the、uh, Buddhism as a, as a Religious or, or a religious package with political implications arrived in the 6th century. For example, there are、uh, early bronze mirrors that we find that do have,、uh, while they often have Taoist、uh, designs, there are some mirrors that do, have, that do seem to have Buddhist deities with the, the Buddhist halo.、Mm-hmm. And, and that would have been known in Japan by、um, 3rd, 4th century AD. But what, whether the, what, I mean, even if the design were to have been, have been、uh, brought into Japan, they probably wouldn't have recognized the, the deity there as, as belonging to this, this unit of, of, called Buddhism. So it's in the 6th century that we do see Buddhism officially as a, as a religion introduced to Japan. And this, this affects Japan greatly in that、uh, with Buddhism, we see the, the advent of the, the temple. A provincial temple system later、right. in, in the Nara period, or as we, as, we, as we go on, which requires a great amount of money and labor. Previously, the、uh, public works by the great kings of Wa、uh, were focused on building these monumental keyhole shaped tombs and, and other、uh, types of kofun throughout the archipelago. It's believed that, for example, I believe it's、um, Emperor Nintoku's tomb in Osaka in Sakai City is believed to have taken, I want to say, four years, they, they estimate. This, we see a shift from focusing on building these symbols of authority and symbols of 
uh, this uh, keel-shaped state, we see the shift from that to building temples, Buddhist temples. As, as, uh, as I said before, this marks the demise of the Kofun system, although it does continue for some time, and, and it's worth mentioning, interestingly, that, that uh, Ishibutai Kofun in, in uh, Asukamura in Nara was actually, it's the, it's the tomb of a, of, a, of a Soga clansman who actually built one of Japan's first Buddhist temples. And, uh, and the Soga clan is obviously well known for the uh, 645 incident, the Ishin incident, in which Soga no Iroka was, was assassinated by the future Emperor Tenji and uh, the future Fujiwara no Kamatari, then known as uh, Nakatomi no Kamatari, uh, the Nakatomi clan were court ritualists, and the Nakatomi clan, along with the, the Mononobe, were, uh, as I mentioned, court ritualists. They were involved in Shinto affairs. Now, they do have a, a clash with, for example, Soga. Soga is known to have immigrant uh, connections, and they, Soga supported Buddhism as a way to control, help to, in their push to control the state. Now, they do end up clashing, the uh, Shinto supporting Mononobe and Nakatomi and the, the Buddhists supporting Soga, and we'll get to that. Yeah, I, I think as kind of lead-in into that, we should talk a little bit about, you mentioned uh, that uh, the Nakatomi uh, were uh, court ritualists, mm-hmm. and to kind of explain that, that, that brings us to the concept of the Uji and the Bei, and for those of you who speak Japanese, uh, you're probably familiar with the term Uji, which uh, is loosely translated as clan. Uh, we talked a little bit about this in a previous podcast, that it, it's not quite analogous to what we use the word term clan for uh, in our Western uh, historical context. But uh, it is a somewhat based on a familial pattern entity uh, of mutual interest. So from that aspect, yeah, it, it does work uh, in the term as a, uh, as a clan. And generally speaking, these were the upper-ranking families, many of whom had split off at some prior point uh, from the main Yamato line uh, and had uh, either uh, gone off into the provinces of, uh, as the regional uh, leadership or, or so forth. Some of them were assigned different roles uh, at the court, in addition to these Uji, though, there was this, this counterpart group called a Bei, uh, B-E, if you're uh, looking for the romanization. But, and there were many different uh, types of Bei, and these were groups of people uh, identified as certain uh, functions, right. so to speak. So you would have, a, and, and each Uji uh, was typically assigned a Bei that they were responsible for. And these uh, these bay they could be uh, stonemasons, they could be armorers, they could be the bay responsible for providing soldiers for the army. They could be the oribe, are famous as uh, the uh, the weavers uh, for the court. And uh, you know, many many basically they they all had functional specialties. That uh, when you were born into this group, your father had been a a potter. For instance, and you were born into the uh, the bay that was um, of potters, you would grow up, you would be a potter, and you would you would continue on, and then pass that down to your children. Most uh, or many of these bay uh, served directly the Yamato family, the, uh, the the chief family of the Yamato polity, and they would actually have subunits serving 
in other locations, uh, sometimes with the, uh, like, for instance, out in one of the provinces, there might be a subunit of one of these bay that was responsible for sending the raw materials needed uh, from the province to the capital area to get this, um, you know, so that so that the rest of the bay could do their job. These were paired entities, uh, so forth. So as Joseph just mentioned, he mentioned the Monono Bay. They were um, originated as the armorers for the, uh, the Yamato state, um, and the Nakatomi were one of the... Um, ones responsible for uh, Shinto-based rituals. So could it be said that these bay are sort of a, a guild system? Is that kind of what this is? It's sort of a... uh, To put it into kind of recognizable terms, yes. You know, they're, they, they don't quite function the same way as the guilds that we see, you know, as merchant guilds is what most people are familiar with uh, later on in like the, uh, the, the 15th and 16th century. But yes, for lack for lack of a better term, their uh, trade associations is one way to to look at them. And so, in addition, you know, the Uji out in the provinces would have they that worked for them and provided all the same functions, except on the local level. And so, as we get into mentioning some of these family, the Soga, the the uh, Monono uh, Bay, the uh, Nakatomi, which later become the Fujiwara, who we will focus on quite a bit. Right. As yeah, things yeah. go on, they this is where they draw their power from and and their interests from. Uh, as Joseph mentioned, the Nakatomi had a distinct interest in maintaining Shinto or the indigenous religion uh, of the Japanese court at the time as the primary state function religion. Because that's what their livelihood was tied to. Right. Uh, meanwhile, the Soga, who had connections to uh, immigration and to trade with China, had a, a vested interest in making, uh, in bringing in Buddhism uh, as a foreign import, uh, which it was at this time, and giving that prominence because they were the ones that had the capacity and the links to bring this new culture in, to bring this new religion in. So it would give them elevated status as opposed to their rivals, the Nakatomi. Uh, so this kind of sets the background uh, for both economic discussion, as we'll get into later on, and also the political intrigues surrounding the, the court uh, as we move through the Asaka and uh, Nara periods. So we just talked about the Uji and the Bay, and I'd like to mention that it was during the the fifth and the sixth centuries that the the the, uh, the Uji, the Bay, the and we'll talk about the Miyake, the agricultural economic units, in a little bit. But it's during the fifth and sixth centuries that these begin to uh, take form and spread throughout the throughout, throughout the archipelago. Now these Uji, they evolve out of local um, leaders. For example, uh, you have strongholds in the kingdom of Kibi, in the kingdom of Izumo, in the kingdom of, for example, uh, Taniwa, in the kingdom of, for example, in, in, North, in North Kyushu, uh, you have uh, in the Harima area, you have these local leaders, and especially um, in East Japan as well, where you have these um, economically independent, politically uh, stable, strong kingdoms, and uh, you have these local uh, these local kingdoms, these local leaders who eventually ally with the Kansai-based Yamato polity form, and they form a federation or a, a confederation. And it's during the, and so out of these local leaders arise the Uji, who later become the, the aristocrats of the Yamato court, and it's also during this time not only the, that the Uji evolve 
uh, into the the Yamato network. But the the Bay, as as Nate mentioned, the occupational groups, the occupational units, um, are also uh, utilized in public works, and they're utilized in uh, sending goods to the capital. And these play a great role in the strengthening of the Yamato's control over the archipelago. For example, fifth century, you have the you have the five kings of Wa. And one of them, Emperor Yuryaku, who is mentioned as Bu in the uh, Song Dynasty Chronicle of China, his native Japanese name is Waka Takeru. And that name is found on two swords in the 5th century. One is in Saitama Prefecture, in the Inariyama Kofun. And one is in Kumamoto Prefecture, which is the Etafunayama Kofun. And so we see that the central Yamato authority sent allies swords with the name of the great king, in this case uh, Emperor Yuryaku, from Kyushu all the way to the uh, eastern Japan, the, the, the Kanto area. Of course, Tohoku and Hokkaido are still out of the picture at this point, but we see a strengthening of that, that archipelago Yamato network. Now, this leads into, so I said in, in the 6th century, in 538, you have Buddhism. And then we see the uh, introduction of these uh, local leaders, the, the Uji, into a stronger and stronger network. And we're seeing momentum towards, towards uh, eventually the Ritsuryo state. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to mention here that, the, uh, for example, the, the Soga clan plays, plays, a, plays a big role in this. For example, in the late 6th century, uh, Soga no Umako, who is the Soga chieftain, he begins installing relatives and, and allies, because the Soga clan married into the, the Yamato family. He begins installing who he wants, and this then um, creates a foothold within the Yamato aristocracy. It allows him to control what he wants and who he wants, and this will become very important later. Uh, and for looking ahead to future periods in history, this is uh, something that's interesting to note, because... You know, we'll get into it with the Fujiwara uh, and and other, uh, even as, as far as the uh, the Tokugawa once they are uh, ensconced in the uh, the Bakufu in the Edo period. This becomes a pattern of history, and a lot of the time uh, you'll get questions about, well, why didn't uh, anybody ever come in and abolish the imperial dynasty and create their own? Uh, after all, that's the pattern of you know, how things happened in China. It wasn't right. uh, one continuous dynasty. It was, you know, somebody would come in, take power, and proclaim themselves emperor. That didn't happen in Japan. And so this is really the base of where this starts, is that at this stage, uh, families like the Soga, uh, the Nakatomi, uh, and so forth, uh, see the more value in working as the power brokers within the system than uh, abolishing the system and setting themselves up as the power. And, and this will continue on throughout Japanese history. And we see this specifically, uh, as Nate mentioned, the Soga clan and later the Fujiwara. I'd like to now talk about uh, Shotoku Taishi, who was a very big name at this time. He lived from um, the late 6th century until 622. And uh, Shotoku Taishi was, a, was of the Soga family. He was the prince regent, and he is, is known for 
the uh, 17-article constitution that he is uh, believed, or he is supposed to have promulgated in 604. But before we get too much into that, there is academic debate about whether Shotoku actually existed or whether he was an amalgamation of various political figures at this time. And much of what we know about him is based on limited, the limited literature of the time. Now, Shotoku is supposed to have been a an amazing intellectual, a, a genius, a a, uh, a political giant, a, a devout Buddhist. He is um, credited with building Buddhist temples, getting the ball rolling on on the spread of Chinese literature. He was also familiar with Confucian way of ruling, and uh, he brought this into, for example, his 17-article constitution, his system of rank, which Chris mentioned is the funny hat system. This helped yeah. to create order within the within the um, aristocracy. Now, Shoto was also known as bringing the Chinese calendar into use, and also sending, the most importantly, sending a letter to to China. Now, Japan had not sent an official emissary to China since the Five Kings of Wa in the 5th century. And this changes with Shotoku, who is supposed to have sent a, who, um, whether it was, it was Shotoku or not, Japan sent a, an, an emissary to China in the 7th century, in 600, and he upset the Chinese court by setting Japan on equal standing as China. And he's known for saying, from the sun of heaven in the land of the rising sun to the sun of heaven of the land of the setting sun. And this obviously upset China and put uh, Japan on equal ground as China. I was uh, actually, in regards to that specifically, I was reading somewhere, and I don't remember exactly where that was, that it may not necessarily have been him intentionally saying we are equal to China, but it may have also been a lack of knowledge of court, Chinese, Chinese etiquette. court etiquette, which I thought was interesting. What's your take on that? At this point, I don't buy it. I believe that they were, for, for, for the level of interaction between Japan, or the Yamato, Yamato at this point, and China, and the level of interaction between Yamato and the Korean kingdoms, who were also in the investiture system with China, for them not to know etiquette at, at this level is, is hard to believe, especially since we see the Zhou Hyobun of uh, one of the five kings of Wa, they're, they're proficient in, in Chinese etiquette for sending an emissary. They have um, they sent they sent Yamato people to China to study, and they stayed there for you know tens of years. They have many Chinese priests and scholars and astronomers and and um, religious figures and and uh, political figures as well who are aiding the Yamato court. And so for that to be a la- uh, the the thought that it's a lack of etiquette doesn't seem to stand on its own two feet in my mind. Mm, so that they really would have no excuse other than they were intentionally trying to say we are your equals. Well, and especially with the momentum that we're seeing with the, the Yamato private estates being placed from, from the 5th, 6th centuries, being placed in the province, well, not provinces, but in the, throughout the archipelago. And we're, as, and, as Nate, Nate will get back to that, but we also see the um, ranking of aristocracy, we see flowering of, of culture. We're seeing Japan really push towards independence from reliance on Chinese investiture of a title. And for example, when when he when when the Yamato court sent this emissary to Japan, they did send tribute, but did not request a title, an investiture title from the Chinese, which sets this emissary this mission apart from previous missions. 
they are now attempting to stand their own two feet. They're not relying on inclusion in the Chinese investiture system to make their status known within the East Asian power circle mm. as they were as they needed before. And I think that, that that's a really salient point in in the evolution of Japanese of the Japanese state. Um, yeah, that's important that you bring up that uh, that they're they're trying to appear as an independent uh, state internationally uh, because at the same time that this is going on, there's a lot of uh, changes domestically. There's a lot of change uh, driven by uh, Shoto Kutaishi and his uh, contemporaries at this time, uh, the purpose of which is to consolidate and uh, bring the Yamato state to an advanced level of sovereignty and consolidate that uh, as as a structure. Uh, and what I mean by that is coming from the previous uh, lo- looser, uh, almost confederation, uh, I think, as we said before, of the different uh, Uji, all paying nominal fealty to the Yamato clan just as the greatest of the Uji. They're, they're trying to change it. They've, uh, Shoto Kutaishi and his contemporaries um, have looked at the continental example, and they see China as this model of an imperial system where there's there's an uh, emperor uh, who is given the mandate of heaven to be the ruler, that uh, there's a capital and that there's a government. It's not just loose collections of families uh, doing their own thing, that there's an actual professional bureaucracy and that uh, that there's laws and that uh, it, it all comes together to form what we would consider more of a modern state and so they are trying to, as we progress through this entire age, uh, and this is really uh, some of the beginnings of it, uh, they are trying to get to that model, but still retain their Japanese-ness uh, in certain elements, uh, things that, that don't quite fit with China. Uh, primarily, the, the religious background, you know, with the cult around the Yamato leader, as being descendant of uh, the sun goddess uh, in the Shinto religion, it does not lend itself to uh, what you know the Chinese system did, and this kind of goes back to why why were the Yamato clan never deposed and a, and a, a more powerful uh, group ever come in? It's I mean this is this is one of those reasons. It's because of this uh, linkage to the religion, and the, if you're not descended from a sun goddess, then you can't really take the place of somebody who is. So it's really, it's a fascinating time period where they're trying to implement this new, and and granted we're talking about something that took place, you know, 1500 years ago, but at the time this is very new, these are very new concepts to the Japanese that they're bringing in and trying to implement, and there's a lot of resistance to this by some of the power brokers, uh, the heads of certain Uji, There's also, this is also being driven by the heads of other Uji, and as we talked about, it, it depended on your position and your interest and how, how this all came about. And so there's where a lot of this conflict is that I, I think we'll get into in a little bit. The thing that I want to uh, bring up now, you mentioned uh, the, uh, the government lands, the, uh, the lands of the emperor or the imperial family out in the provinces. Uh, these were called uh, Miyake. Uh, and as you, as you mentioned, they, they existed uh, prior to the time period that we're talking about. We begin to see mention of them in the, uh, the, the 5th and 6th centuries. And what these were was these were 
rice uh, farm holdings, land holdings, uh, that rather than belonging to the local Uji chief who was in charge, the income from these lands were went directly to the court, uh, directly to the Yamato court. And the reason this is important is because it signals a shift in two ways. The first is in economics. Prior to this, and, and extending so, uh, somewhat further than this, but, but definitely prior to this, the focus was on manpower. We talked about the Uji and the Bay, uh, and the Bay being the manpower resources. And an Uji's wealth was calculated in terms of how many Bay they had working for them producing items. Now, part of that was the Bay of farmers that they had, but that was only one element. It was not measured in the total amount of land that they had necessarily as it, as it was the manpower that they had working for them. With the Miyake, we start to see a shift going, and, and this continues on into later economic systems that the Japanese adopt, where the unit of measure of wealth becomes the rice field and the rice output. And really this is what starts to shift that is that the, the central government is saying this is how we are going to calculate our wealth and this is the wealth that you owe you know that, that the regions will be sending to us and so this starts that, that shift in economic focus um, additionally it's a matter of strengthening the sovereignty that we were talking about where if the imperial court has land in we'll say the Kibi region that is directly reporting and directly uh, uh, supporting them, well, then they now have to send people out to manage it. So rather than local people controlling local land, you now have somebody coming from the court, from the central government, intruding into local affairs and having sort of control and an eye on things. So it's, it's, a, it's a first step in the centralization of provincial control at the national level. Uh, and those are the, the two steps that we want to look at at this time as we're getting into this. These and ties together with the uh, which what you were saying, what Joseph was saying about the international focus and trying to appear uh, as an equal and, and stronger. They're they're doing this at both levels at the same time. So it's quite a quite a shift uh, from uh, previous periods. So as I mentioned, the the Soga clan is intermarrying within the Yamato uh, court within the Yamato family. The uh, Soga no Umako, who is installing uh, his people at uh, powerful positions. For example, Empress Suiko and Shotoku Taishi are, are Soga related. And, and as I mentioned, Shotoku Taishi, um, at least wh- whether you want to um, believe in his historicity or not, for now we'll just use Shotoku Taishi as, as a name for this movement. Now, and so we see system of. So you have. You have uh, Roe is being established throughout the archipelago. You see the birth of this system of, of five regions and, and seven basically circuit roads, early stages of that. Taxes, but really, what really pushes the domestic system of, of taxes and this inter, interconnection, domestic interconnection, is the Taika reforms, along with several other law codes that I'll mention. This starts with the assassination of the head of of the, 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 I guess, the most powerful member of the Soga family, Soga no Iruka, and that's in 645. And this incident is called the Ishin Incident. And at this time, Soga is, is throwing its weight around. It, is ha- it, is, it has sway over the court. And the future emperor, Tenji, and 
the future Fujiwara no Kamatari. So at this point, he's Nakatomi. He is awarded the Fujiwara family name by Tenji before Tenji dies. So the future Tenji, uh, at this point, he's known as um, Nakanoe. And they begin, along with um, a member of the Soga family as well, they begin to plot the assassination of Soga no Iruka. So they actually kill Soga no Iruka at the palace in front of the, of the nobles, in front of the, the emperor. And this begins... So then um, it's often said that this, this sees the end of the Soga family. The Soga family is now, it's now defunct. It's now it's non-existent. But the Soga family actually continues in later years as well but they no longer have sway over the over the court. They no longer have the monopolized control that they, that they once had. Now, the next year, we see the promulgation of the uh, Taika reforms, which is based on, on Chinese precedents. And we see land redistribution. We see um, po- land and power taken away from the local power holders and made the, at least in name, made the... the basically the economic base of the Yamato court. And this is the, the economic strategy to really bind the archipelago together. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at uh, what uh, J.W. Hall has written about it in uh, uh, Government and Local Power in Japan, 500 to 1700. Uh, and it was uh, promulgated on New Year's Day of 646. And just going down the different major themes, there uh, was an, a, an, an abolition of uh, surf status, uh, is, is how he terms it. So uh, uh, bondsmen, uh, they were, that distinction was officially abolished. The next thing was that uh, they put forth that an imperial city or capital would be established, which was eventually done. Uh, not necessarily at this time, they, that uh, population and tax registers would be drawn up, uh, so in the form of a, uh, a census of both people and of land, uh, and this is the beginning of, uh, like I was talking about before, um, this is where they start to codify the shift from manpower uh, being the focus of the economy to land. Uh, the next one actually uh, puts that clear. The old labor tax is abolished, and in its place, a produce tax will be collected on rice lands. So instead of taxes being contributed in terms of how much manpower you're giving the government, it is now simply produce, be it rice or, or, or whatever. And he lists all the different uh, amounts of taxes for, for all sorts of different things. But, uh, you know, that's, that's the bottom line is that this really begins to solidify and codify that shift so that now... Uh, the economic base is in terms of production, not of manpower, and so on and so forth. And there is some academic disagreement over how effective the Taika reforms were or how extensive they were, um, because we do see in uh, in the 660s, there's the Oomi Code promulgated by... Well, I'll go through the codes first. First, is, there's the Oomi Code in the 660s, then you have... Um, shortly after that, you see the Asuka no Kiyomihara Code. After that, you see in, in the early 8th century, you have the Taiho Code. And then um, after that, the Yoro Code. And so we see uh, penal and administrative, administrative legal codes being promulgated one after the other, borrowing from previous ones, making changes, and really establishing the central authority, the power, the um, 
the second to none power of of the of the emperor. And it's at this point that I really, for example, before I mentioned the great kings of war, the great kings. After that, we have, um, um, well, for example, in, in the Kofun period, you have kings. They then evolve into great kings, and then they evolve into into the emperor. And it's at this point that, without hesitation, that we can we can really begin calling the leader of the archipelago the the emperor of the emperor. Japan. Yeah, part of uh, this is uh, as well in this making the imperial family or the imperial court the the preeminent power in the archipelago. You know, I mentioned uh, land reform and and surveys and, and so forth. Uh, one of the key Things that the uh, the reformers at this time, uh, led by uh, Prince uh, Nakano Oe, uh, were trying to do was solidify the economic base under direct control of the imperial court. And so, one of the ways that they decided to do this was that uh, no longer would rice production, uh, rice producing land fields, uh, be allowed to be private holdings. They were all subsumed as public. Uh, and by public, we mean controlled by the court. And of course, there were there was a lot of opposition to this, as you might expect. You know, nobody wants their their land being taken away from them. Uh, so the way that uh, they mitigated that was, and this was before Nakano Oe became Emperor Tenchi, so he was still a private citizen, so to speak, in that in those terms. He relinquished his own land voluntarily, as kind of an example to everyone else that, you know, see, I'm doing it, you know, I'm giving up my land for this greater good. Uh, of course, later on, we see him become the emperor, so then he goes on, you know, to own all of the lands, so to speak. This is where a lot of the tension in this time comes from, is that there's these reforms, and any time you have any sort of reform, there's people who are going to benefit, and then there's people who are going to lose out. And so they're trying to overcome the... Objections of those who are going to lose out by making it a see this is what's good for the entire state uh, and and really making it into a, a in terms of a buy-in into this national polity uh, and it ends up doing a, a fairly good job and eventually sets the stage for when, when we go later into later economics how the central government has control of all the rice production land and then divvies it back out in uh, the form of uh, individual estates granted by the court going into the, the hand period, showing system, and so forth. And it's, it's during this time that these administrative and, and, and penal codes, that especially the what's most often mentioned is the Taiho Code, Confucian-based central administration, Chinese style. And previously, Japan, Japan had often styled itself on Chinese precedent, but... We, but it had its own, I guess you could say Japanese flavor, and it had its own its own system. It's during this time that Japan really models art and architecture, especially with the flowering of of Buddhist temples and art and architecture. What we know, and this this will develop in, into into Nara and Heian culture as well. What we know of, or what we often think of as as Japanese art and whatnot really stems from the culture that was basically born out of this Chinese-based um, administration of the archipelago. Okay, and that's the end of the Ascanara podcast. We'll be coming to you next week with part two. In the meantime, feel free to drop us a line at Twitter, 
at Samurai Archives and at samuraipodcast at gmail.com. And that's a wrap.